0: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to
1: reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's a major milestone in the pandemic fight. This past week, the CDC changed its mask guidance, advising that those who are fully vaccinated can go mask-free in most circumstances. But after a year where we've faced one deadly surge after another, how can the medical experts be so sure we're safe this time? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, I'm Keith Benconi, and today on the program, we're going to consider what the CDC's mask turnaround says about how far we've come in beating back COVID-19.
0: We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine.
1: Then in the second half, well, if we are at a turning point, then it's a good moment to take a look back and ask the question, what lesson should the last year teach us?
2: We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system.
1: But first, let's consider that mask milestone. So, under the CDC's new guidance, those who are fully vaccinated can leave their masks off both indoors and outdoors, except in certain crowded indoor settings. Those who are unvaccinated, meantime, for now, no change for them. Uh, Worth noting real quick, Governor Newsom has not said yet when or if California will be signing on to the CDC's guidelines. Currently, state rules are more restrictive in some circumstances. But zooming out, to help us understand why the health experts at the CDC felt comfortable taking this step, we're going to be speaking with someone who's looked at the science of masking very closely over the last year. That would be Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. I spoke with her recently. Dr. Monica Gandhi, welcome back to KCBS In Depth. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, so I understand that you consulted with the Biden administration on their COVID policy and uh, that you support the decision to loosen mask rules for vaccinated people. And uh, this is an interesting position in some ways because uh, when we spoke last year uh, about a year ago, seems like a long time at this point, um, you were one of the strongest proponents for masking, uh, making the case that really they provided even more uh, protection than many people recognized. Um, Now, I'm sure that your views on the effectiveness of masking has not changed, uh, so I I suppose your position now really must speak to the effectiveness of vaccines and how much that has really changed the, the playing field that we're on at this point?
0: Right. So uh, you're exactly right. I actually wrote with, um, with my division chief one of the first papers on universal masking for the public and COVID-19. Actually, we were writing it even before the CDC had come out with their guidelines on April 3rd, and then subsequently have written uh, seven papers or so on the effectiveness of masking for COVID-19 prevention. However, uh, what has changed? Well, actually, the most effective prevention strategy that we could ever think of has come out since um, I was a proponent of masks, which were essentially vaccination. And so masks are sort of a shield, um, one of the mitigation tools along with ventilation and distancing and vaccines are the solution. Vaccines are a force field. Um, and so because of that, uh, linking mask wearing to vaccination status, whether indoors or outdoors, I think is very prudent. And um, I, I absolutely, um, Uh, you know, completely agree with their guidance. I also think it's motivating for people to get vaccinated.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point, because uh, early on in the vaccination effort, uh, there was very waffly guidelines about what the vaccine would allow you to do. I think the CDC was reluctant to make any big promises about how much that would change for people. And it was pointed out at the time that, well, okay, if, you know, if the CDC is telling me once I get vaccinated, I'm still going to be living with all of these restrictions that I've been living with for the last year, Why bother getting vaccinated? Uh, So you're making the point that uh, having, uh, making it clear that really when you are vaccinated, some of these risks are diminished and uh, you can go back to a more normal life. Uh, That's an important message to get out there as a a motivational tool.
0: Yes, exactly right. Because, you know, there were some focus groups uh, performed by some people who are, you know, at the Washington Post that were performed with people who said, you know, I'm not sure I want to get vaccinated. And one thing that came out of that was, The CDC is telling me nothing's going to change after I get vaccinated. What's the point? And uh, the same thing came up with an incentives uh, study from The New York Times that looked at what are some of your incentives for getting vaccinated. Some money would help actually It came out, um, but also um, the question of being able to go back to normal life. And so if we have a country in which Many of us are vaccinated and we didn't need incentives to that. And there are people who need incentives. Why would we not do everything in our power to increase vaccination rates among those still on the fence where the vaccine is freely available? I think this is a really, really strong, motivating carrot um, you know, move by the, the CDC, and I really applaud it.
1: Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that we have learned about the vaccine, because uh, I suppose some of the CDC's reluctances uh, back when they were uh, being a little bit more waffly, we really didn't know how well the vaccines would perform in the real world. Now we have many millions of people who have taken it. And uh, based on the data that's coming in so far, it seems like it's doing just about as good as we could have hoped for.
0: Yes, yeah, so that is a really key point that um, when the clinical trials came out, I call that information extremely 2020 um, because really uh, the uh, real world effectiveness data on these vaccines really came out in 2021, of course, when we started um, rolling them out. And there's study after study after study, actually the ones that they the CDC referred to in their guidance in the press conference yesterday were, for example, there are a couple of studies in, their, in MMWR, their own journal that showed among uh over 65 year olds the effectiveness of these vaccines was 95% uh, for severe disease um and then also uh there's multiple studies from Israel and, and the UK that show that effectiveness against severe disease is up to 99 98% and then a really important study from Qatar that looked at the effects of the vaccine against the variants. and even with the uh, B1351 and B117 by the time they got to close to March and their vaccination campaign was the most prevalent circulating viruses, um, effectiveness was still 97%. So it's really putting together that effectiveness data. And then the other thing they talked about yesterday was all of these multiple studies that show us the vaccines block transmission. Again, we never thought they weren't gonna block transmission. We just didn't have the data of swabbing people. Um, after vaccination for asymptomatic infections.
1: Better to know for sure, certainly.
0: Yeah, and then one from May 6th and JAMA but, uh, that showed um, 90% reduction in asymptomatic infection, but this has been up to 94% in other studies. So also block transmission very effectively, very hard to transmit after vaccination. Putting that together, the guidelines are sound.
1: Yeah. All right, just going to reintroduce you real quick. Uh, We are speaking right now to Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, talking to her about the new mask rules coming down from the CDC. And, you know, these have been met with uh, some opposition, some concern from some in the medical community. Uh, Particularly, I think one of the one of the biggest concerns is just a problem that's been coming up again and again throughout the pandemic, the issue of clarity. Uh, you know, we're now saying that people who have gotten vaccinated uh, are, the CDC is saying that they don't need to be masked in uh, pretty much any situation. Those who are vaccinated need to be, uh, who are not vaccinated need to be much more careful. So uh, we are creating kind of this patchwork and then there's the, the local regulations, the state regulations. Uh, so we're not, uh, we're, we're adding a little bit of complexity to the mix here and there's uh, some concern that this may May confuse uh, Americans and, and Californians about just what they should be doing. Uh, do, do, do you take that concern seriously that uh, losing clarity might uh, hinder our uh, COVID pandemic fight?
0: You know, to be honest, I found the guidelines on March 8th from the CDC much less clarifying, which was you had to be in a certain room with a small group, vaccinated, unmasked, and distance, and then only one other unvaccinated person could join you and uh, from a different household. no. They literally released
1: a flowchart to explain it at all. Yeah, it was, it was really so very confusing.
0: <laughs> and then the outdoor masking guidelines that they released on April uh, 27th was uh, so confusing that someone said to me that they, yeah, they needed to carry around that flowchart with them. So actually, I think this is super clear. If you're vaccinated, you don't have to mask anywhere except on certain um, places like public transportation. If you're unvaccinated, continue to protect yourself with masking. If there is an unvaccinated person who chooses not to mask, even though they're not uh, vaccinated, you are protected. You are protected by that mask. That's what our multiple mask paper showed us, that you protect yourself by wearing that mask so that person protects themselves. Outdoor is safe. Outdoor is safe for vaccinated and unvaccinated, though they didn't release the outdoor masking for unvaccinated, but a lot of us are saying outdoor transmission is very low. That's time to release that as well. And the final point I wanna make is, the important thing is if we don't follow the science now, when we said we were following the science with wearing masks, what does that signal for businesses or um schools that need to open? What does that signal in term of of the the solution leading us back to normal and getting our children back in school full time in the fall? So I think we do have to at some point embrace the science of the vaccines.
1: What about the issue of enforcement? I know that some Uh, For example, grocery stores are concerned that they can't tell the difference between people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated. And uh, so if they're on the hook for trying to make that uh, discrimination or or just telling everybody, you know, you have to wear your mask when you come in our store, uh, that potentially puts them in a position where they're going to be facing abuse from residents. And there's a lot of other situations you could imagine where uh, not knowing who's vaccinated and who's unvaccinated puts a puts some folks just in a in a weird position in terms of enforcement,
0: yes. I mean, I think that some stores. So, you know, how is this going to play out? States are going to decide um, if they follow the CDC guidance. I think Illinois and Oregon and many places have already indicated they will follow the CDC guidance. California has not yet indicated. Um, and then, and then at the local level, each county will decide, um, and then stores will decide. So, a store could say, "No, nope, I'm decided. I'm going to keep my uh, customers masked," and that will be an enforcement in the store. Or the store will say, "Yes, I can't enforce and make sure that this person's vaccinated or unvaccinated." But one thing I keep on thinking in all these arguments is, I feel like we think the American people aren't able to kind of trust or, or follow guidance. And and I I have been a little I've been a proponent all along at, for example, not yelling at people who don't wear masks. I think I think we have more trust and. Um, And we have more ability to understand nuance than than the public is given credit for. And I think they'll know I'm vaccinated, I'm gonna go in, I'm unvaccinated, I'm not, I'm gonna go in without a mask, with a mask. Why? Because they wanna protect themselves. So I, I'm, I'm a little more confident about the American
1: public, I think. Yeah. Speaking uh, once again with Dr. Monica Gandhi, a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. And you, you mentioned a second ago that uh, you really feel like the science is in in terms of the vaccine effectiveness and uh, the, the role that masks should be playing going forward. Um, uh, speaking about one of your colleagues in the Bay Area, Dr. John Swartzberg with UC Berkeley, he was making the case in some interviews earlier this week that, he just felt like it was prudent to really take any change to the rules whether masking or something else and and roll them out in a more gradual way uh even saying that he would feel more comfortable with this if we had maybe waited a month and seen more data come in uh, just to feel more reassured that the the good trajectory uh, that we're seeing nationally in terms of the pandemic continues um but it sounds like you're saying you feel like the the data that we need is already in Uh, curious uh, where, where where is the disconnect on that perspective
0: You know, the studies that show vaccine effectiveness, they're now about 11. And I think what really pushed the CDC over the edge was the great study from Qatar in the New England Journal last week about the effectiveness against variants, sort of, you know, relieving one final concern. Um, So I think that it depends on where that tipping point is for you. Um, With me, the tipping point is, I think now 11 studies on real world effectiveness and now about 12 or 13 on uh, blocking transmission. So I feel like that's enough data to come in. Um, We're seeing it play out in epidemiology in the real world with the declining cases, declining hospitalizations, declining in deaths. So I feel like we have enough data to do that. And the reason, again, going back why I would say waiting is one approach. The reason not to wait to follow the science on how effective vaccines are is there is actually collateral damage from Closures that are not required when a public health emergency is winding down and the collateral damage can include school closures um, and other damage for uh, the economy. So I do think we have to respond to how well things are going and signal that we're getting back to normal
1: and just to tie it back into one of your earlier comments i mean just for anybody that doesn't uh anybody in, in our listenership that does not follow the play by play in all of these uh, arguments you really have been uh one of the consistent voices uh raising those concerns about the collateral damage of all these uh health measures and and uh, really making the case that we should be more targeted with our our health interventions and uh yeah
0: i want to give you one really quick example there's yeah. one person in the hospital at San Francisco General with COVID today, and our high schools and middle schools are still closed. So I think I wanted to give that as an example of what can happen when we don't follow the science of when the um, hospitalizations are going down.
1: Yeah, and so just tying this into what you were saying earlier, uh, you're, you're saying if the CDC does not go forward with what you consider to be the best science at this moment, it would create a credibility gap.
0: Yes, it does. And, you know, the funny thing is, poor CDC, (laughs) they were getting so many commentaries before this that were saying, you're so cautious, you're not actually modeling (laughs) the effectiveness of the vaccines. You yourself, as a CDC representative, is wearing a mask, even though you said we don't have to mask a distance after vaccination. So they followed the science. They did exactly what people were asking them to do, many public health experts. And now everyone's criticizing the CDC. <laughs> so I actually no wrote winning. them this morning and I said, you know what, I am so sorry. I think you're doing a great job.
1: <laughs> it's a tough job. It's a tough job, yeah, but somebody it's has to job. do it. Um, in closing, uh, just taking all of this conversation in and, and uh, all the positive signs that we've been seeing in recent weeks, what does this moment say about where we are in terms of this pandemic. Uh, It it, it feels like we've let our guard down before too early a bunch of times and and been burned shortly thereafter. But is it perhaps a time for cautious optimism that the worst is in fact behind us?
0: Yes, um, it really is important to remember that anytime you let one let their guard down before, there was not the incredible protection of immunity to a pathogen. What changed? We laid down exactly what lends pandemics, which are developing immunity in the population to a pathogen so that it can't come back. So we have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. And so no, we will not be burned. And actually it's kind of amazing to have this transformational moment, as President Biden said. This is a watershed moment. We should celebrate
1: it. All right. A hopeful note there and a moment for celebration as well. We have been speaking to Dr. Monica Gandhi, once again, an infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. Dr. Monica Gandhi, good to have you back on the program.
0: Thank you very much.
1: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, as the CDC loosens its mask guidance, we're considering the progress we've made in fighting the pandemic. Up next, what could we have done better?
2: Um, Next, uh, we'll move to Dr. Ninkum Shaw on the data um, session, if you don't mind sharing some key takeaways, Dr. Shaw.
1: There's a few categories of takeaways. This past week, Stanford University drew together dozens of experts for a timely conference aimed at taking on that very question after everything we've been through over this pandemic. uh, What are the most important lessons uh, we need to make sure we carry forward?
2: um, I was kind of shocked at the complete absence of
1: the data infrastructure uh, for the kinds of things we needed to do. A lot of heavy hitters turned out for this one, so hoping to tap into some of that expert know-how, I got in touch with one of the organizers, Dr. Michelle Berry. Uh, she is a professor with Stanford School of Medicine and the director of the school's Center for Innovation in Global Health. We spoke about what lessons she's learned over the last year and what she's hoping we won't forget. Dr. Michelle Berry, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you, Keith, for inviting me. So it's, of course, been a steep learning curve that we've all been Uh, coming up against as we grapple with this pandemic. And uh, this conference that you hosted drew together a lot of scientific and medical minds to uh, compare notes on what's been learned so far from uh, the medical side of this to the mental health side to uh, the race and equity side. Uh, Help put this in perspective. You know, this was a virus that was unknown at the beginning of 2020. How far have we come toward understanding it? Just how much is there uh, was there to be presented at this conference?
2: Well, I I think the science behind this virus has been really in real time and unbelievably successful in rapidly identifying the virus, um, the mechanism by which it spilled over from bats, and also a record time for developing a vaccine, albeit inequitably um, distributed in the world right now.
1: So it's certainly a year and a half that has highlighted many of the the gaps in our medical system and many of the, the, the failings that are exhibited in our medical system. Uh, and I know that your perspective is really on a, a global level uh, once again. So taking that global perspective, um, there are some countries that did better than others. What accounts for the success stories? What set them apart? Well, I can think of
2: at least three, well, I can several reasons. Um, First of all, I'd like to, mm. since I'm very interested in women empowerment and putting them in leadership positions, if you look at the countries that did really well, uh, many of them, um, such as Taiwan and the Nordic countries, um, did extremely well with women leaders, New Zealand. Um, and I think that has to do with a more...
1: to Ardern and uh, President Tsai Ing-wen in the case of Taiwan and New Zealand, yeah.
2: Yes. I think it has to do... Um, with the fact that uh, these leaders had a very collaborative approach um, and had unified messaging and really um, built the trust of the community. Um, I think we also saw surprisingly um, parts of Africa that did very well, much better than we did. And and again, if you look at Rwanda, which has an incredibly low uh, level of infection, um, you know, Anya Mingawaho gave a wonderful talk Um, describing how it had to do with community trust and unified messaging. um, And even without the vaccine, they've been able to um, keep their cases down low.
1: That's very interesting because I think that In the U.S., we really think of the difference between success and and non-success as a a story of resources, a story of money, a story of uh, putting as many dollars as possible into solving the problem. Uh, But uh, from your telling, there are apparently some low-cost solutions that are effective when there's broad buy-in throughout the country?
2: I think it's not only broad buy-in, buy-in. I think we have a broken public health system. Uh, We don't do well with preventive um, healthcare or po- population health. We're very focused on curative, high-tech um, health care system, um, whereas many of these, um, what we call the global south or low-resource countries, really have built up a strong community healthcare worker, um, um, armamentarian, and also a, an approach to public and preventive health that we, in, particularly in the U.S., have failed at.
1: So does that speak to a level of trust that other uh, health authorities in other countries uh, enjoy?
2: Yes. And, and I would say we don't uh, enjoy uh, a social network hmm. uh, that really captures um, some of our disadvantaged people the way um, other countries do. We just don't have a social contract. We have more of a autonomy, you know, what the U.S. is known for. And you can say this is good or bad, but we're known for um, independence and autonomy. Um, Very little about collective decisions around
1: health. Speaking once again to Dr. Michelle Berry, a professor with Stanford School of Medicine, uh, recently hosted a conference uh, looking at lessons learned over the last year and a half fighting COVID-19, trying to pick through some of the lessons right here with her. And well how do you how do you build that public trust then is that uh, one of the topics that uh, you and the other experts are are, are thinking through because uh, I mean even here in in the bay area where we had rel- relatively high buy-in to the public health orders there was still a lot of anger uh, what could be done next time to change that dynamic a little bit well,
2: I think One is build a stronger public health system. And I just heard today, Biden is putting in a great deal of money, I can't remember the number, um, into building up the public health um, infrastructure. Um, I think that we need, and we haven't done this yet, uh, to centralize our public health system um, around problems. I think we've done that now, or Biden is trying to do this with climate um, by having Gina McCarthy and John Kerry sort of be the domestic and foreign czars around climate health. So I'd I'd like to see that done um, with pandemics. That has not yet been done. I think global health surveillance um, needs to be at the national cabinet level. Um, And I think we as a wealthy country need to strengthen surveillance overseas. For example, if you look at the Ebola outbreak, if you, you need to pay attention to your animals, Before an Ebola outbreak happens, if you're doing good surveillance, you'll see there's a die-off of gorillas before it spills over into the um, population, even though that's also coming from bat. Um, We need to keep good surveillance going on to prevent these epidemics. Because if you look at the last 35 pandemics and epidemics, they've all been associated with animals, whether it be HIV, Ebola, avian flu, and now COVID nineteen.
1: Hmm. So putting putting this all together, and all the lessons learned, and all the conversations that are uh, being had among you know experts such as yourself, do you think that we are more ready at this point for the next global pandemic? Have Have we? Filled in? Are we likely to fill in some of these blind spots that uh, you, you've identified, or uh, do you see us stumbling towards uh, a similar disaster once again?
2: I think if we don't strengthen our public health system and our surveillance, we're we're on the road for another disaster.
1: How confident are you that we will take those steps?
2: I, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. Um, I think we've seen science really um we've we've watched science in real time usually we have a big lag between the science and then the implementation i think this was a real wake-up call um and also the first time we've ever done real science at the time of the pandemic and i hopefully this is a uh, a paradigm that we can repeat so i do think we're better um And also the fact that we got a vaccine in one year, which it used to be 10 or 15 years, means that we're set up um, to deal with these problems. But, you know, we cannot sit on our laurels right now. Um, And we certainly, um, you know, the fact that this is raging in other parts of the country, uh, of the world, um, makes me really worried about variants um, that might um, disrupt all the, positive um, actions that we've seen in the United States, the dropping of cases.
1: Yeah. Each new infection is another chance for a mutation and a potentially dangerous okay. variants. So A lot to watch out for there and a lot more uh, notes to be uh, handed back and forth between the experts. But uh, we do thank you for joining us right now and uh, sharing some of that expertise with us. We have been speaking to Dr. Michelle Berry once again, professor with Stanford's School of Medicine, also the director of the school's Center for Innovation in Global Health and the senior dean for global health. Uh, Dr. Michelle Berry, thanks so much. Thank you, Keith. This has been KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past editions of the program online at the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week.